At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick in a basement for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destiny for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a fantastic guest. She is a writer and author, I guess a writer and an author, or sort of the same thing in certain ways. And this is the one and only Catherine Brodsky. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's funny, recently, uh, there was an article where I was cited, and they called me a U.S. author. And I thought, that's really interesting. First of all, I'm not really American. And second of all, um, well, my book is about to come out, so I guess I'm an author now. So I was quite pleased about that. <laughs> Well, when you just said about there, you gave away where you're really from, I think. So did I why say don't you... it the Canadian way? I said it the you Canadian actually did. way, didn't I? Yeah, you oh, did. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, so sorry. So, Catherine, uh, please, please, for people who aren't familiar with you and your work and background, just uh, give us a rundown. Sure. I'm, you know what? I've, I've been very surprised when people do know of me and this has been happening more. And I always wonder if they're just talking, you know, nonsense about me. What are they saying? <laughs> but uh, for those who don't and haven't heard all these rumors about, you know, things, um, my background, you know, I come from a traditional journalism background. So I worked in, um, I wrote for all these like publications that <laughs> not everybody likes, but I happy with the work I did. Um, so I wrote for things like the Washington Post and the Guardian and CNN and um, who else? Newsweek, Wired. But I wrote about cultural things, uh, mostly film and television, occasionally about spies and tech and a little bit of business and a little bit of psychology. And, um, and then I also worked a little bit in the film industry as a unit publicist, which is sort of capturing the story of the productions of the films, and also uh, producing content behind the scenes. So that was my sort of original background. And um, things. my life has kind of transformed quite a bit over the last few years. And I started um, talking a lot about things like freedom of speech and a lot of more social issues, cultural issues, cultural critiques, and sort of strayed a little bit from, I guess, the common narratives. Um, but, um, you know, whatever I thought I sort of started saying, whereas in the past I was not, um, I kept a lot to myself, I would say. Mm, I can absolutely empathize with that. What was the moment or what were the moments that made you decide to join, for lack of a better term, let's call it the culture war? What was the <laughs> thing that made you think, okay, I need to stop sitting on the sidelines and I need to start speaking my mind more? Sure. I mean, there was a very specific event that sort of led to that. Um, and, you know, I, I hate 
it's interesting, you know, I know it's called the culture war, but I don't see myself as a warrior because I want I want to reach everybody and I want to be able to have conversations with everybody. But what I was seeing, I was seeing, I guess, even though I say that this was sort of a dramatic thing that happened, I guess I was sort of heading that way for a while because I was seeing things in society where, you know, you couldn't have open discourse, where people were vilified, um, where things were misrepresented, including in the media, even things like, you know, I'm personally not a fan of Trump, but I what I would see is people just having this, you know, the Trump derangement syndrome side of things. And um, instead of sort of critiquing things based on facts, um, it was very emotional and it was very tribal. And um, and it wasn't always accurate either. So when I would sort of verify, oh, did he actually say these crazy things? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And, um, and just seeing kind of the fragmentation, the divisiveness of people around me, and then the sort of idea that certain things that didn't really make so much sense to me, if you said it out loud, there was this kind of crippling fear that people had of saying things. And I found that fear within myself as well. And then I had sort of a, I guess, a cancellation moment, because who doesn't have a cancellation story at this point? Um, so I ran a group for women who was uh, for women journalists, women writers, and it was a job board and it was an offshoot of another group. It was this like little private thing. And I thought, what, what could people want? always jobs. And it wasn't political. It wasn't, you know, people weren't sharing like their personal stories. It wasn't any of that. I just thought easy, straightforward, except it wasn't <laughs> as it turns out. So I had um, somebody posted a job opening at Fox News and people went crazy. I mean, I started, it was a huge pylon and, and she even like the person, the original author, she wrote in this apologetic way. And, you know, it was like, I, you know, we're trying to diversify, change the culture, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that just probably made things worse. <laughs> and so I saw all these people really attacking her. And so I made a post saying, Hey, you know, um, we've come, apart enough. Let's come together. And also let's keep politics out of this group. You know, this is a job board and let's not attack. Let's not do personal attacks on people. And I thought that was a very kumbaya post. <laughs> of course, now it's funny. You're laughing. And I, the funny thing is like, now I tell people this and their reaction is like, oh, we know it's coming next. <laughs> But I was completely innocent, I swear. Um, I did not know what was coming next. I thought I thought I'd bring peace and that's it, <laughs> you know, really. But instead, you know, it's called the white supremacist, a KKK collaborator, um, all sorts of really awful things. And I, at the time I thought, okay, I'm, I engaged with it because I had such a, you know, I was always believed in engaging with everybody. And um, by the time I had about 666 comments attacking me, or actually precisely 666 comments attacking me, finally closed that thread. Um, and I was also told that I can't take politics out of the group, right? Uh, because mm. inherently it's political because it's a group for women. And so I pissed people off further because I said, okay, fine, then I'll open it up to men. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were not very happy with that. Um, and I, you know, 
And I thought, you know, at the time there wasn't really anything private there, but I said, Hey, you can set up your own group. You can, you know, I can even give you the name. I'll change the name of my group. But that really like that part got people even angrier. And, um, they ended up, you know, people would downvote my content everywhere. They went on social media and attacked me. They threatened to um, have, you know, they tried to reach out to my editors to to make sure that I'd never work again. They threatened me saying, you know, you have we have very long memories. There were attempted doxings, maybe successful. I, I was told there were doxed, <laughs> that I was being doxed. Um, so all these kinds of things, which just felt like um, such insanity. And I was somebody, by the way, who's very, um, what's that thing? You know, when you're not very, you don't fight people. You're like a, not an agreeable. Abuser. agreeable. Agreeable. That's the word, yeah. that, that famous word. Yeah, I, I thought I was fairly agreeable. <laughs> um, maybe I'm less agreeable than I thought then. But, um, but, you know, it was like a weird thing to deal with. But on top of it, I was getting messages from people not just the ones attacking me, which of which there were plenty, but also from people saying, hey, you know, I really see what's happening to you and it's not right, but I am too afraid to speak up and I feel really ashamed about that. Mm -hmm. So it's getting a lot of these messages and I was getting a lot of messages from people sharing their own experiences, whether in that particular group uh, or like the sort of the sister groups of that one or just in general, um, and what they're experiencing, people losing their jobs, people just being completely fearful of expressing any views that don't correspond, and people who have suffered consequences. And that's what really changed my path, because I felt like, hey, I, I have to speak up about this. Mm, that's interesting. What what year was that? Just to... Yeah, this was 2021. Oh, okay. All right. That's actually later than what I had anticipated. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, you could have said that you could have said 2015 or 2016 or 2017. No, I mean, I don't think I honestly, I don't think I understood the extent mm. of this back then. It sounds like because I heard from a friend that I was already somewhat disagreeable on some of these topics back then. And he said he really judged me, but then later he changed his mind. And but, um, but I, so I think I was speaking to people individually in that way, but mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't a public person then. I never, I didn't, you know, I, I tweeted, but barely. And, and just, I, yeah. I wasn't somebody who is outspoken in any public way. I probably mm -hmm. did talk to people individually. And that was actually my beginning before all of this happened. I would talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. So I would be sort of the one that would bring up certain things. And um, so it was in me but not in this like activist kind of way, I suppose. And, and then I felt sort of a responsibility to speak up. I also think for me, you know, I might've not noticed the, the, the scale of things because mm -hmm. uh, my own views probably align with a lot of these yeah. things, right? <laughs> so. I, I, I was I was about to say I was like if if it came that late and it it, it clicked that late, then yes, um, yeah, that that comes from being more more liberal, right? As a as a yes. more liberal as a more liberal journalist, particularly female journalist. In fact, I'd say that it's only in the last couple years where uh, the, the what I call the circular the circular firing squad starts right. aiming in your direction. If you're someone who's naturally more right-leaning or more conservative, then 
way, way, way back. Right? We've kind of been dealing with this for yeah, and I was absorbing. Yeah, and I was seeing some of the stuff, but I wasn't seeing it at that scale. So I would see, you know, people getting a little bit attacked over, you know, the wrong words or using terminology or things like um, microaggressions. Like I remember noticing things like that. And I thought it was just right, kind of ridiculous. But I was not a very confrontational person either. Mm. And um, it's one thing for me, like I will defend people when I think something is wrong. And I think that's probably why I spoke up. But versus, um, you know, just coming out and and being sort of uh, outspoken about things, maybe not so much. And and also, um, you know, I was writing about culture and film and things like that. I wasn't political at all. So that, I think, also gave me a little bit of a reprieve from from the culture war, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I understand it. I mean, I'm a musician by trade. I mean, I've been a... I've been a full-time musician since 2011 and it was 2018 was the year that I got dragged kicking and screaming into all this mess. I mean, it's kind of fascinating that it's now been, wow. Um, you know, five, about five years at this point where I've been in this strange position where I'm kind of juggling all these different balls, right? I'm still a musician, but I started this podcast exactly five years ago now um, written a couple books. Like at this stage, honestly, people know me more for social and cultural commentary than they know me for my music, which is not what something I set out to do. But I just think that there's such a hunger for truth, a hunger for authenticity, a hunger for people who are really critically thinking and who are willing to have some courage and say the things that other people are thinking and feeling, but won't say. And I think that's, as I understand it, I think this journey is what's led you to write the book that you wrote, right? So you've written a book, which is called No Apologies. I think the subtitle is it How to Find and Free Your Voice in the Age that's of Outrage. Correct. Is that Yeah, is that correct? How to Find and Free um, Your Voice in the Age of Outrage. Yeah. And we've both been traveling quite a bit over the years. And if your experience has been anything like mine, you'll find that whatever city, whatever country you go to, a lot of people are talking about the fact that they don't feel like they can speak out. Um, whether this was about Trump and Brexit back in 2016, or about how they were really feeling about the pandemic response and everything associated with that, or how they are now. And I, I can't, I feel like I've just had the same conversation thousands and thousands of times, sometimes privately, sometimes on stages, sometimes online of just trying to encourage and embolden people a little bit, because I've said many times that I think if I tell people that they don't need to go full Zuby, but (laughs) if every sane and normal person, whether you are right down the middle, whether you're a sane conservative, whether you're a sane liberal uh, and they still do exist because I know some of my listeners right now will be like, Zuby, sane liberals don't exist anymore. They do. Um, I just think if sane people, sane people who are within the realm of normalcy could each be, let's say, 10 to 20 percent more bold and willing to speak, then I think it would squash a lot of the problems and a lot of the divisiveness and a lot of the polarization. I think it would stop a lot of the insanity. I just think the average normal person, I I fully understand why people don't want to do it. I do understand the chill. I do understand the fear. I know that every single person has something to lose. Um, But I think there's, there's a lot more to be lost long term by not voicing 
these concerns and opinions and sometimes simple facts. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree, obviously. But when I uh, first, well, in terms of sane liberals, you know, there's definitely sane liberals. I hope I'm a sane one. Um, but I think, that, <laughs> but even if I'm not, there are other ones out there. Um, <laughs> and I know that because we have conversations in private. And when we have these conversations, because people tell me what they think now, right? Because once they started seeing me speaking up, they're like, wait, wait, you're, you're like this. And so I started getting a lot of private messages from people and people in, in the film industry as well. Like, I mean, there's like huge people, like Oscar winners, people at the top of their fields and they are scared, mm -hmm. which is so sad. Mm -hmm. And their views are much bolder than mine even are, but, um, but they're scared to speak. And then there are people who are sort of um, earlier in their careers or just making some progress and they're afraid. They're either afraid for themselves. They're also afraid for their, you know, family members or their friends. And so they're afraid of like saying the wrong thing and ruining it for someone else. But in terms of their thoughts, they're not so far apart. And I have to say, you know, I, I there was sort of a segregation of thought that was happening um, in, in, I think, in a lot of liberal circles in particular, um, because, for example, I didn't really know conservatives until all of this sort of started happening in my life. And then conservatives started reaching out to me and having conversations. I mean, sometimes people would just like be like, hey, I want to talk to you on the phone. Can we have a chat? And, um, and I'd have a conversation with them and I've never been somebody who's like closed off about speaking to people who have, you know, different views. So I was always open, but it just wasn't in my orbit. And I, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are stereotypes that I had in my mind. There were definitely like, um, cliches and things that I heard about, you know, how all conservatives are racist and Hey, some of them absolutely are. <laughs> and I'm meeting more and more of those too, but you know, a lot of people, were sort of surprising because they weren't so different from, you know, they weren't thinking so different from me. And in some ways we had some similarities, some differences, but it was generally coming from a good place. And we just had maybe different ideas of how to solve problems. Um, but we kind of were interested in solving similar pro problems. And sometimes I could convince them, <laughs> you know, to change their minds and certain things, but those were not conversations that are like happening. So, and I think that happened much more around Trump, but I think it started earlier than that, even like when Bush was around, there was definitely a vilification there. Um, and I think for me, when I wrote the book that I wrote, you know, which is, you know, wanting to capture stories of people who've been through this and, and, and how the, you know, wanted to capture the cost of speaking up, because I think, you know, I think it's important to to know that, you know, there is a cost. If you speak out, your life changes, um, sometimes mm -hmm. for the better. And I think it makes your uh, relationships more authentic. It makes you feel better about yourself and who you are because you are more authentic to yourself. And you're not letting like a loud minority dictate, radical minority dictate, you know, what, what we should do in the world. Um, but, you know, yes, you can lose your job. People have lost their jobs. People have lost their tribes, their friendships, their, you know, and even relationships. So I think it's important for people to be aware of that, too. But when I wrote the book, I also really wanted to reach, you know, what I thought was my tribe. And um, and I wanted I wanted to really empower people to find their voice and understand that they can use it. And also, I mean, 
look, I'm a pretty, <laughs> I might not come across that way these days, but I'm a pretty shy person naturally. And I am not a fearless person at all. I have a lot of fear. And I think it's important for people to know that and understand that as well, because sometimes they look at somebody bold, like you come across pretty bold, Zuby, but you know, you seem like you're fearless <laughs> and they might not see themselves reflected in that. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, I mean, most people are not as fearless as they might seem. It's just that they have very strong principles and those principles kind of overshadow the fears because, mm. you know, a lot of times, and this was a common theme when I was interviewing people for my book, the common theme was more, who would I be if I didn't do this, if I didn't speak up? It wasn't so much like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to face my fears here and really speak. It's just, they couldn't imagine themselves doing otherwise. Yeah, man. You've said, you've said so many interesting things there, Catherine. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering which one to jump off of. Um, what, one thing, one thought that came to mind when you were saying that it's not until quite recently that you had conversations with or got to know conservatives. And actually I've had a lot of people, including some on this podcast, um, who have said similar things, people who have come from more liberal backgrounds or upbringings, right? I've spoken to hundreds of different people on, on these podcasts and something I've noticed, and this is a, a bit, it's going to be a bit of a generalization, but something interesting I've noticed is that it seems like virtually all conservatives know, and even are friends with liberals. Um, it's hard to find a conservative who's like, oh, I don't, I don't even know any liberals. I have no liberal friends or whatever. But actually, it's really common amongst liberal people, especially, especially the younger they are, but even some of the older ones to say things like, oh, I don't even, I don't even know any conservatives, or I'm not friends with any conservatives, or like, I'm not certain. And I find that th there's something interesting because we use the term liberal, and in many ways, and maybe you've found this recently is I found in many ways what people now call, the people who are now called conservatives in certain dimensions tend to be more liberal than the people who call themselves liberal. We saw this as well during the, the so is, take, take for example, freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is a liberal concept yes, by definition. Is. It's a very liberal concept. Like you'll struggle to find, like conservatives are way more in defense of freedom of speech these days. Than are. Are. Yeah, <laughs> right. You could have said this is different 30 years ago, but you know, but yeah. for the past 15 years, I'd say at least, um, certainly the past 10, that's been the situation. If you look at the, um, the whole pandemic response situation, even in various different countries, it tended to be conservatives who wanted a more liberal approach who were like, Hey, actually people should be allowed to make their choices, right? They were more anti-lockdown, more anti-mandates, not trying to force injections into people and so on. Like they took the more liberal approach. Um, and even just when it comes to being exposed to different ideas or being able to disagree with people and so on, of course, there's exceptions to this. But again, I found generally speaking, um, people who are called conservatives are more willing are more willing to do that, right? Someone might be espousing views they really disagree with or coming with like a very different perspective or whatever, but they won't try to deplatform them, get them kicked off social media, come at their sponsors, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's all, all of that, honestly, has been coming from people who I, I often generally call themselves, call themselves liberals. I, I don't, I call that the control left. I don't think that those people are liberals, but I think it's yeah. interesting what people kind of 
call themselves. And I, I mean, and you, and you've seen this yourself, right? You are running this, you are running a site for a group for female journalists who by mm -hmm. definition are going to be at least 90% liberal. Um, and then one thing like a job offer that they disagree <laughs> with, like what, right. What one thing they disagree with, it's like that response and the response towards you to me is very revealing because let's say if this were a, if this were a, a board of, I don't know, conservative writers or conservative journalists or whatever. And then there was like, oh, hey, here's a job opening at MSNBC or here's a job opening at CNN or whatever. I'm sure you'll get some, you'll, of course, you'll get some comments. Of you do, are, you yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but you wouldn't get the outright, like you wouldn't get people trying to dox and being so vicious and hateful and whatever. No, it would just be but you like, might not no. like my theory for this. So, okay, um, no, go for it. Please do. Please yeah, do. It has taken me a little while to get to this point because I, in the beginning, I think I started in a more enthusiastic way towards conservatives and I sort of gotten to know the landscape more. I, I think I, I moved, <laughs> my views have changed a little bit, but the reason that I think, for example, people on the left fought for things like freedom of speech and other kinds of freedoms is because, which I do consider, you know, traditional liberal values, which is, I think, why it, it resonates with me so much and stayed with me. But the reason that I think they fought for that is because of power. I think that at certain points throughout history, you know, power switches. You know, sometimes the conservatives have it, sometimes it's the liberals or the left. And when a group doesn't have the power, that's when they want to not be censored, right? That's when they want that power. And what I'm seeing on the right, I think part of why they embraced freedom of speech in the way that they have was because it was being used or the lack of freedom of speech was being used as a tool against them. Now, there are people who I think for them, it's a principle and they are fundamentally going to support it no matter what or who is being censored. But I also started seeing that as sort of conservatives have gained a bit more traction, um, a little bit more power and awareness. A lot of people that I've witnessed have sort of turned to a point where now they want to censor. Mm -hmm. Now, they want to silence and they even admit it openly to me or in, in group situations that indeed they don't really care about it. They care about it because it was being used against them. And so I think now I'm almost seeing because some liberals are now being sort of or the left, the leftists, whatever you want to call them, they're being shut down as well. Because, you know, in some cases, you know, there's been speech where, um, for example, you know, the Palestine situation, um, the Gaza situation, there's been people who have um, used the tools of censorship against, you know, to get certain students expelled or, or people fired. Um, and um, that's not necessarily a left and right thing, but it is something that's being used uh, in some context against people on the left. And I started noticing that they're now saying, oh, um, <laughs> we need freedom of speech. People are suppressing our speech. So it's being mm -hmm. used against them. Now they want it. And it would be interesting to see how that um, shifts as the power equilibrium um, turns around. So, um, and for me, you know, it's something that I've had to sit it with a lot myself because, um, you know, I, I, I take a particular position on this particular topic and, um, but I don't necessarily think that, you know, people should be censored for saying, you know, they support 
um, a country or uh, an entity, even if I don't feel the same way or I disagree with them. So, um, you know, as they say, you should be allowed to have speech, you know, if you don't support freedom of speech, if you don't support it for the, for the, the speech that you don't agree with. But yes. at the same time, like, I, I think I have a lot of confusion about it at times because, okay, so an opinion is one thing, but what if you are putting out something that's blatantly false has been corrected and you continue doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, are you allowed to lie? Well, under the first amendment you are, um, I'm not, I mean, I'm not American, so <laughs> it's different in different countries, but, um, but also then we have, well, platforms, platforms are different. Platforms are ran by people, private entities. So they have a choice and then, okay. And then me personally, you know, who would I have on a podcast, for example? Um, and so I think this is a very complex topic in a way. And, and I think sometimes we're very black and white about it. And, and I've been going back and forth and back and forth. I, I'm quite, it's even though I wrote a book on the topic, I well, still feel undecided. I, yeah. Well, I, I think that's good because it means that you're thinking, right? Yes. It means that you're thinking and you're taking in feedback and you're noticing things changing. Right. And we've seen that as well. Right. We, we've seen, I think, except as I see it in the modern Western Anglosphere. So I'm talking USA, Canada. UK, Australia, New Zealand, let's say. I noticed from 2012 up until, let's say, 2022, that 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 decade was very much a leftward cultural social swing, right? Like massively from for that decade, 2012 to 2022, everything was just shifting left. It didn't matter which politicians were in power. In the UK, the so-called conservatives have been in power for the past 13 mm-hmm. years straight. Right. And things have swung to the left regardless. Right. It did, yeah. They didn't conserve anything. Um, same in Australia. They had a conservative government. Didn't In the U.S., you've had at least half that time approximately conservative government. It doesn't matter. Right. Everything was just swinging left. And I think that we hit peak woke 2021-2022. And I think that some of the things you are now observing and feeling with it, some of the same things I'm observing are you're seeing that pendulum starting to swing back. And in the process, you are seeing certain people who are more right-leaning adopting some of those same tactics that they decried that their enemies, so-called, on the left were using. And they're adopting some of the same woke behaviors. We've both used the term, you know, you've called it, right, I think, right-wing woke. I've referred I did, to the yeah. woke, woke right before. Um, yeah. And I see that as well, exactly. I see the adoption of certain types of victim mentality. I see certain people adopting um, the, the racial and ethnic identity politics. I see some people adopting pretty sort of, you know, you had the sort of left-wing misandry of the, you know, we hate men, kill all men kind of nonsense a few years back. And now mm-hmm. you're starting to get this kind of like genuine strain of sexism and misogyny. Again, mo- I think most of this is online. I don't know how much of this like is in the real world, but you're starting to just kind of see people picking up the same kind of uh, doing the purity spiraling thing as well, right? Like the left have been 
doing all this purity spiraling, all trying to outwoke each other, right? You know, yeah. cancel this person. It's and all now exactly you're start- mirror images of, right? It's like exactly <laughs> yeah. the same. And they do say like, we're using the same techniques. I mean, some of these people actually say this. So they're yes. they're even self-aware about it. Um, some mm-hmm. of not, I think a lot are not self-aware, but a lot are. And yeah. because, you know, it's, it is effective as a way, as a tool of getting power. It's just uh, wrong, but it is yeah. effective. It, it, it is. Um, you know, I think I think something that helps to understand it a little bit more is I think one one hard thing with these conversations is we we always have to use heuristics, right? So I generally avoid even using the terms left and right because it's way yeah. too simplified. Um, everything in humanity, pretty much, funnily enough, apart from gender, exists on a spectrum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. So so it's not like, you know, there's a simple left and a right. Right. You know, you've also got authoritarianism and libertarianism if you're talking about political axes. But another thing that I've noticed, and I think that most people get this wrong. I think most people think that zealotry is explicitly tied to certain religions, ideologies or belief systems. I personally, I have a theory that zealotry is simply a personality trait. You have some people where they're just very zealous in their approach and everything downstream of that. So it doesn't matter whether they're a Christian, a Muslim, an atheist, um, a left winger, a right winger, whatever it is, they're just they're just very, very high in zealotry. So they're deeply intolerant of anyone who does not ex- agree with their exact belief system. They're willing to use sort of certain tactics and ways of doing things because they think that the ends justified the means, right? There are some people who are like, oh, religious people are like that. There's some people who are like, oh, th- these people are like that. These, And I'm like, I don't think it's, it's not unique to any group. You have, you have people who are atheists who claim they don't believe in God, and they are more evangelical than they the can. average Christian, Muslim, or Z, right? Like they dedicate their entire time and they're very, very, very intolerant of someone. But it's who interesting doesn't... that you see it as a personality trait and maybe there is yeah. truth to that. I haven't thought about it from that perspective. I guess the way I've thought about it is um, more so as to why they hang on to these beliefs as, as much as they do. Like, it's pretty easy for me to change my mind, which probably mm-hmm. is a personality trait. Um, in fact, sometimes it's a weakness because I'm uh, I don't have this kind of like massive conviction in things. Some some things I do, but but I'm still thinking about things all the time. But some people definitely um, attach themselves more easily to a belief and 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 go all in on it. But um, but I think also what's the difficulty in changing that belief and the difficult. So that's something I think about a lot because you can't change a personality trait so much, but you can't change uh, somebody's perspective um, and open them up a little bit or or change the circumstances around them. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example, if somebody like a lot of this is also tribal. Um, you know, part of why you mentioned earlier, there's not as many people on the left who have friends on the right. Why? Because you're going to be sort of shamed <laughs> for, for that. It's, it's unacceptable. And they are very afraid of being judged by the tribe. And, and we're also afraid of losing the tribe. 
So whether you're, say, you know, the mega um, tribe and you've now formed all these friendships, even if you were to change your mind and be like, hey, I like uh, Biden or DeSantis or whoever, right? (laughs) Two very opposite. But but even if you did, like, think about the loss you're going to have. And then the other one is going to be your identity. You know, your identity, very often people buy into certain sets of beliefs as their identity. Oh, I'm a health freak or I'm a, you know, I'm a lefty. I'm a progressive. I'm a, I'm a nationalist, whatever it is. It's also an identity and they build their identity based on these beliefs. So I think those two things, and and there's several others that play a role, but I think those two two things really make a big difference. What makes it very difficult to leave um, their particular tribes or their more or their beliefs because they're losing their tribe. Somebody mentioned to me that they watched um, a documentary about f- flat earth believers. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the documentary, there's a moment where the person, one of the people that they interviewed sort of admits that, you know what, um, the world is probably round. But he yes. says, but I can't, I can't admit this. I can't do this because I built this whole community. And people also build communities around victimhood. And, you know, so there, and that's also a community, especially when, you know, maybe you were in an organization for women, or maybe you were like a victim of say sexual abuse, which is horrible. And you actually might need that community to help you get through things. But now you've built that community. And what if your community doesn't share your new beliefs or your changing beliefs? Well, now you're going to self-censor. And to leave that group of people who've now supported you in such an important way is really, really difficult. So I think mm-hmm. I think that plays a really big role. But that is something where I think we can empower people to kind of look at things a little bit differently because otherwise people would never leave cults. I don't think yep. it's so different from a cult, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. It, when when taken to an extreme, it's not. Yeah. And I, I agree. I completely agree with you on all those points. Um, you know, there's also the fact that you, you touched on this, but many people, you know, I, I, I think most people look, we're, we're, we're all members, we're all tribal to a degree. And we yeah. all are part of various communities, you might not even want to be one just by being born. You're the member of various communities, right? You're a member of a family, you've got a family name, you've got a nationality, you've got mm-hmm. an ethnicity or a mix of ethnicities, um, you're, uh, you know, you're a man or you're a male or you're a female. You're Are you misgendering me right now? <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. <laughs> right? So, so even if you don't want it, you know, there's the communities that you can opt into. And then there's the ones that it doesn't even matter. You're just part of that community, right? You're Jewish. You're Jewish. Cool. Like you're, you're always going to be right. I'm, I'm Nigerian. I'm Igbo even more specifically, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. just born that I, I was born a man. I'm, always going to be a man, despite what I, I, I may have claimed in the past. And um, <laughs> so so it's it's yeah, it's it's, it's just all those things. I think, y- you know what I think a lot of it comes down to because I tend to I tend to be more. Um, what's the what's the word? 
I, I tend to be more concerned about people's behavior than their beliefs in many ways. Me too. Because, right, because regardless of what someone says that they believe, how they actually act in the world and how they treat other people speaks volumes, right? And you you get this from all sides, right? You could have someone, let's take, let's take things that are supposed to be polar opposites, but they're really not, right? You could have someone who's like um, the most ultra conservative um, right-wing religious person, whether they're Jewish, they're Islamic, they're Christian, whatever, right? And they're supposed to be, you know, I'm a man of God, I follow all the commandments, I'm a man of the right. And then they violate, they violate the first code, right? You know, like treating other people as you would like to be treated, right? They're claiming all this. And then the way they actually treat other people, maybe even their own family members, their friends, strangers, whatever, is extremely hostile, extremely aggressive, uh, unloving, whatever, right? They've, they've completely, they're following all these other laws, but they've kind of missed the mark on the main thing. And they're not genuinely a kind and decent person. Right. And they're running around trying to shut down all these other people and whatever. And then you've also got people who are, you know, like, I don't know, the Antifa types. Right. They, they're, <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm such a good person and my beliefs are so correct that I can morally justify going out on the street with gloves on and, you know, covering my face. I tried to talk to Antifa ones to try to convince them not to use violence. It, it didn't yeah. go. They didn't attack this, me, though. <laughs> yeah. But, but but this is what I mean. Right. I'd say, look. If you're at the stage where there, there are certain things to me that that are heuristics where I'm always watching and you can really clearly see this on social media. Um, to me, there are certain dead giveaways that makes me be like, OK, regardless of your belief system, I'm going to struggle to believe that you're genuinely a good person, no matter how much you virtue signal. If you if you condone or celebrate the intentional deaths and killings of innocent people. I don't care whether you're saying it's in the name of God or it's in the name yeah. of this cause or it's in the name. If you're doing that, if you're celebrating innocent people dying and suffering, um, that's that to me is a massive red flag. Another one, if there's somebody that you disagree with, you you see this every time. Um, you see this every time like a politician or a high profile person dies or gets sick. Right? Who are the people? Oh, yeah. Right? You, you see what I mean? Right? Who who yeah. are the people celebrating? Right? Let's say um. Oh, gosh. What's that super famous right wing commentator who passed away a few years ago? Rush Limbaugh. OK. Right. I remember when Rush Limbaugh died and you're seeing like waves of people, so-called liberals, progressives, whatever, you know, the good people, the nice people, yeah. as they like to see themselves, like genuinely, genuinely, genuinely like celebrating and cheering and posting all these memes. This is not someone who's like ever advocated for violence or who's physically we're, we're not talking about, you know, some. You're, you're, this yeah. is a, a radio a radio host whose views you don't like. Okay. No, and I it's see probably... that a lot. I see that, and, you know, mm -hmm. in all these circles. At least some people maybe are not virtue signaling before they do it. So there's yeah. That, but... or, or 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 you remember during the whole um you know during the whole COVID era where you know certain people would get sick and die, and you're seeing people so that's to me. I'm just like, look, I don't care what that was awful. side. Yeah, I'm like, I don't care what side you're on. Like, just as a human being. Like that to me is a dead giveaway that I don't think you're the good person that you claim to be. There's so many people in this world that I disagree with. There's even people I, I dislike or whatever, but like if they got, if they got sick, if they got harmed, if they die, what I, my prayers are going out to them. I'm concerned for them just as a human being. It's not like, oh, 
you're but it's on also this, this item, level I'm... of dehumanization, especially as you mentioned with the pandemic. I was, I was really, I mean, uh, uh, during the pandemic, I, that had a lot of impact in how I saw things too. Because first yeah. of all, you're right; it seems like a liberal thing to have a choice, um, and I'm not anti-vaccine at all. But um, you know, um, but at the same time, I, I was very much pro-choice, and I did, I did. I was quite outspoken about that. And, you know, and mm -hmm. I definitely got a lot of <laughs> hate from and, that. And, from you and, and, and you didn't want people to die for making a decision. I didn't, I certainly didn't. I didn't want people to die. And look, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Like I never took a full stance. Like I believe what I believe about the vaccine myself. Um, I'm not an authority on it. So I base my beliefs on people I knew who are very smart and um, work in that um, industry and understand how it works and, and other things. And also at the time the strains were different, but, um, but ultimately, you know, I also don't want to deny other people's experiences because people have had, um, some negative experiences and provably so directly yeah. tied. But for me, it was much more about like, people should have a choice. And I did a lot of research about it because I, I looked into, you know, how do you treat other vaccines and how, you know, and so this was a very unique situation, but bigger than that, I saw the level of dehumanization and how quickly that happened. So just mm -hmm. because somebody made a choice that you think is a bad choice, even if I think it's a bad choice, right? Yep. Um, that the idea that this person is now other, that this person is less than human. This person can't sit with us. This per just that way of, of looking at things. It, and I hated, I hated the comparisons to the Holocaust. I did. I don't think that was correct, but, but the dehumanization factor of it, I do think was um, similar in the sense that just being able to see how quickly people can turn on a group and see them yes. as you know, animals or, um, that yeah. was to me, um, really opening, and I didn't expect that. So, yeah, well, you, sorry, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but you, you, no, you said ahead. something there that you said something there that that's really interesting to me because I understand why, why certain people, especially Jewish people would not like that Holocaust comparison. Um, but it is, it is apt because psychologically it's the same thing. Right. I think I when think people it was make because when, it I, didn't need to be like a Holocaust comparison. So I, I get it. I, th I think it's yeah. because it's the one that people actually understand. Because look, if mm -hmm. you grew up in the West, when people say like, right, in school, if you went to it's like that's that's an event you learn so much about in school. You learn what happened. And people always ask the question, oh, like why did how did it get so far? Why did yeah. people like allow this? Whatever. Because I don't know. In school, we never we never really learned about the psychology of it, right? I think if you just learn the facts, you can always just, people like to think, hey, if I'd been back then, I would have been the hero or I would have done the this or whatever. Most dangerous thing, by the way. Exactly. And think I think the way. reason, yeah, but I think the reason why people made the comparison is because look, in our relatively short lifetime, this is the first time where there's been this sort of global scale event where now there is this sort of opportunity for people to do this demonization and dehumanization and whatever. And you sort of, you saw the psych psycho psychological, even the words that people were using to describe each other, yes. you quickly, you saw how quickly it devolved into that. So I think when people make the comparison, it's not saying, oh, like these are equivalents. I think it's how they made events. the comparison. It's just like, 
which was yeah. like they Maybe wear so. the, I, stars, I, the yellow stars. So I didn't, yeah. um, I didn't like that, but I can understand elements of it. And I think also further to the whole thing of like, I th- would have thought that I would have hit the Jews or yeah. I would have gone against Hitler. I think it's part of why people think that way is because Hitler's being portrayed in this very cartoonish way, like this, he's just this evil man. And of course we'd recognize evil, but you know, to a lot of people, he was very charismatic. He, he appealed to them. He did do some good things. It's not because I think Hitler is great, but, but certainly he, you know, there was a lot of social programs that he instituted. So people were quite happy with him, especially at a point where they were like the underdogs and were kind of miserable. And here he comes and he helps them out. Oh, but you know, Hey, we'll throw up some, throw out some gay people, Jews, gypsies, whatever, you know, that's people convince themselves and they don't always see it coming. And I think we don't, the fact that we don't recognize in ourselves that we might be that person who just, by the way, most people probably didn't do anything, right? Most people just Mm -hmm. said nothing. And that is the dangerous thing. And that's really why I speak about these topics now, because the biggest danger, if you look at different revolutions, you know, the, the color revolution, the um, Holocaust, I think a lot of people weren't necessarily an active part of it. It was probably a minority of people who were um, statistically a part of it and a small amount of people who were also standing up to it. But most people just said nothing and kept their heads down either because of apathy or because they're afraid. And yeah. that's where we, how we get to where we are, we get to, even with the whole pandemic thing, you know, you had a very aggressive people who said, Hey, you know, you, you guys are evil if you don't take the shots and mandates are good. And then you had people speak out against this as well. But, you know, I, cause I've had a lot of conversations with people and, most people kind of agreed with what I was saying. You know, we did see the inconsistencies in how rules were applied. Some things didn't any make any sense. It didn't seem right that it would be mandated. But people just didn't speak up because it was so socially uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and that's the, yeah, and, th- and that's it. That's the, that's the psychology right there. Um, yeah. I think something that people forget is that I, I bring I bring this point up in a lot of podcasts, but I often like to remind people that human beings have not fundamentally changed for thousands of years, right? So you can look back at something that happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300. And I think modern people, we have a tendency to have, um, what, what did C.S. Lewis call it? He called it like chronological snobbery, right? People <laughs> have this idea. It's such a great term. People have this idea that we're so much better than our yeah. ancestors were so much more intelligent and advanced and refined and whatever. And actually when stuff hits the fan, you see how tribalistic and um, how much group think people use and how emotionally driven and irrational people can become, especially in large numbers, how quickly they are to vilify other people, turn all that tribal energy into um, you know violence. And it, it can devolve very quickly. And I think that I, I also think that this is why, you know, in the past, in the past two years, of course, we've had the two situations I don't speak on much publicly at all, if at all, uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine situation and, you know, the upflare of the mm-hmm. Israel-Palestine conflict, um, situations which are not new at all, but yeah. they've had a revival. 
And I think part of the reason why it sort of hits the public consciousness so much is because we often get lulled to believe that we're that we're past that, right? Yes. We you, you you look back at World War One, World War Two, like all this stuff in the past, and it's like, oh, like we've advanced beyond that. Human beings are better now. We're no longer invading other nations and trying to take resources and slaughtering people and massacring. It, and and then these things happen, and it it's sort of this like shock into reality of like, oh crap, it's still possible that still happens like human beings haven't changed right you still got massive armies which might just roll in somewhere it's interesting i mean right now i'm um i'm reading the bible front to back um again and <laughs> it's 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 long but you know i've been reading through you know, especially i've just finished i just finished second kings today but you know you're reading like the books of judges the books of kings even like exodus what and what's so fascinating about it to me there's a lot of things that are interesting but just when you think that this is thousands of years old, right? The Old Testament, reading the things from thousands and thousands of years ago. And it resonates so much because you're just like, we've been, people have been doing this crap forever. Like, like the things that people are doing, you're just like, oh my gosh, like it hasn't changed. Like the wars, the battles, the kings, the struggle for power, assassinations, slaughtering, like you're, you're just like, Jeez, like, I fell for just... it, by the way. I did. I thought the West was beyond a lot of things. I did. I thought the West in particular was mm. progressive in, in a certain way, right? And yeah. and then I saw what's been going on and I'm like, oh no. And honestly, at any point, yeah, you you don't know what's gonna happen. And you and you're right, if you look at it through the lens of history you know, it kind of, it shifts. You have this like mm -hmm. wonderful democratic, wonderful kind of environment. Everything is great. And then bam, something happens in yep. people. I mean, Germany, I hate to go back to, <laughs> to that, but Germany mm -hmm. was like this beacon of uh, democracy and it was very happening. So you wouldn't have expected yeah. what happened to happen there. And it's, I mean, it, and happened, I happened, it happened twice. I mean, Germany, twice, like, right? To twice, not in the same way, but it did. It, that's yeah. right. They were very aggressive. There's, I think yeah. they're a very different uh, country today. But, you know, I thought the West would be different. I didn't think the authoritarian impulse would exist in the way mm. that it, I found that it exists. I mean, my parents and me, I mean, I wasn't born. I wasn't born in the West. So as an immigrant, you know, I saw the West as, as a place that's, um, you know, this beacon of democracy, of, of, of capitalism, of, of opportunities, of, you know, different cultures. All of that stuff really appealed to me, actually, uh, because it wasn't existing in the same way, you know, in, in a communist regime. Mm. And, um, and now, you know, you see, you you know, my parents would warn me that they would see little signs of it, right? And they like the Western. Your sorry, your parents are originally from where? Uh, from the Soviet Union. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I think so. You know, I did. You know, I was quite young when I left, so I didn't really have the same experiences that they did, and I was very keen to sort of embrace and fit into this new culture and fit in, and um, and it was. You know, I, I think I I was a typical, you know, teenager who didn't listen, right? And by the way, I wanted to bring up something that you said earlier about the, um, you know, beliefs and behaviors. Um, it's funny because I was about to write a piece. I was thinking I was going to write a piece about a friend of mine and um, how, 
you know, when I first met her in a class, I, I didn't like her. She just seemed kind of stuck up. And, and then, you know, we ended up talking after the class and she said, you know, I told her how I was struggling with my Spanish class. It's just, everybody seemed to know Spanish in the class. And I was really struggling. She said, you know, I'm going to bring you, I have some old textbooks. I'll bring them for you. And people say they'll do things all the time and they never do it. But the next class she, she remembered, she brought it. And I thought, Hmm, this person, I need to give this person a chance. And we became very good friends. And there's a reason why she was stuck up. But um, <laughs> but, but it's about the behavior. And then I was thinking about that in context of religion, what you were saying earlier as well. And, you know, even I, there was a point of time, I'm not religious now, but there was a point of time where I kind of took it on for a little bit. And, um, you know, I remember thinking, Look, if, if the Bible says these terrible things, <laughs> that you have to do these terrible things, even if I believe in it, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And if you look at religious texts, I mean, of all religions, Jewish, Christian, Islam, any any of these um, and, and more, um, there's usually some things in there that are like, I don't like I don't think that's right. Which, right? Uh, just just to be clear, which which terrible things are you are you referring to? Some okay, of the things so for, in like old Mosaic law. Yeah. So, for example, one thing would be if like uh, uh, there was infidelity, you would stone the women. Mm -hmm. So this is in uh, uh, one of the Jewish texts, and um, well, it's in in your text too. Um, assuming you're a Christian, so um, it's in the um, Old Testament. But you know, we don't practice that today. Right. There's mm -hmm. a lot of things that it, we almost use it as a metaphor or, you know, a lot of things we use as metaphors. We don't actually do things that we think are bad today as a society with we evolve and as human beings, we evolve. And and I think when I look at people of various religions, you know, I've met all 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 types of religions, you know, I've met people who are Muslim, who are just incredibly generous and kind and giving and you know, they, they pick the best parts of the religion and they so I'm follow say that. They're, 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 they're commanded to be, they, they should be. They're commanded to be, but I mean, there are some weird things in some of these books. I'm not as familiar and I probably should read the Quran at some point, but like, but look, I think all the, the texts have some things, but we don't follow them. We follow, we follow, you know, if you have a good person in front of you, they tend to follow the, the good things, the generous things, the, they, they find the good in it. And that's what they do. I don't know if it's sacrilegious what I'm saying, but it's just, um, it's just how no, I, it's not. I, I, I don't, I don't know how much, I, I don't know how much it applies to, to Christianity. Cause obviously in the, I, the, yeah. the new, the new, the new Testament supersedes a lot of stuff in the old Testament. So, right. But it not, is part because so you guys believe in, in the, <laughs> in the old testament too it's just it's been updated. yes but but yeah. but the mosaic i mean for example if you take take something obvious like eating pork which is prohibited mm -hmm. pork and shellfish yeah. you know which is prohibited in the old testament in the mosaic law that doesn't apply to that doesn't apply to modern yeah. day christians like in the new testament that is explicitly superseded um mm -hmm. so that those foods are not unclean i don't know how um i'm not as familiar with judaism so i don't know how some of the how the needle is fully threaded in terms of what yeah. modern day Jews believe compared to what's in the Torah, but for Christianity, it's, um, a lot, it's, it's quite think. different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know how it's, um, <laughs> that, that would be an interesting podcast actually. Maybe I'll get, well, it. And I think a lot of times, 
Yeah, and I think a lot of times we also use religion um, in, a, in almost like a, uh, or people use religion in, as a metaphorical guide to, you know, how to deal with life. So it's not always, um, I don't, I don't think it's always taken as being like so direct. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not religious. It's been a long time since I've, mm. I used to, I used to read all the, I read like most of the books of different uh, religions just to try and understand because there, there's a reference point for a lot of people and it appears a lot in literature and in art. So I, yeah, I thought sure. it was interesting. So, um, but I've forgotten a lot of it, unfortunately. No doubt. Well, the, the books are still there and will be forever. So you can, you can always read them. Um, I, I it's, yeah, man, there's there's so many directions we can go in. There's there's um there's a topic that you wrote about, which I'm curious to learn more about your thoughts on, just switching the topic a little, because mm -hmm. I found the term very interesting. You wrote an article about information obesity. Oh, so yes. uh, tell me about information obesity. Yeah. So I think what happened is um I think there's a level of massive distrust in the institutions that we have, whether that's media or governmental institutions, the institutions that have historically provided us with information. And so people have taken it on themselves to feed themselves a diet of information. And we have so many tools. We have the internet, we have social media, we have YouTube. I mean, I mean, you, all of that lives inside the internet, of course. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of resources, resources that we didn't have, and it's easier than ever. But the problem is, um, the reason I call it information obesity is because it's a bad diet. <laughs> so instead of, you know, you, you used to have to really invest some time to understand something, right? You read multiple books about a topic, and you have this depth of knowledge that you gain because you know to write a book is not easy i know um to write a good one is even harder and then you know it takes a lot of research and there's gatekeeping and you know some of that is good some of that maybe not so good but ultimately you're likely to have more in-depth kind of products that you can consume of information of of knowledge and wisdom and you know the more you read the better you understand something but now what people do is they look at things in a very surface level and the information is constantly, constantly coming at them, but it's coming at them in sound bites. So people have this illusion that they know more than they do because they know a little bit, probably about a lot of things, but they know very little. And based on such limited information, I think it can lead to really bad choices, but this feeling of confidence about making those choices. So that's why I call it, you know, the, what is it? What did I call it? <laughs> information obesity. Information obesity. We get too much, but no, it's not good stuff. It's not good for mm. us. Um, it's and not, it's not because I want to gatekeep. I just, uh, but I, I think people need to understand that it's like, you, there is a profound difference between, you know, reading something really fundamental and reading a lot about it versus like mm -hmm. getting a little bit of a TikTok uh, hit from one source and then <laughs> and a little bit more from another. And also, you know, it's all things that you're already kind of interested in. I think we have the same issue, by the way, with media. You know, everybody kind of used to read the same newspapers. And, you know, now there's a, something for everyone. And in some ways it's good. But in other ways, there's not a shared reality because you read the newspaper, you're going to read many of the articles. You're not just going to read the things you're attracted to. You're going to read, you're going to have a more substantial picture of what's going on in the world. 
and you're going to have a shared reference. But now you're just reading what you want to read and maybe only about one topic that just kind of intrigues you and maybe one that reinforces what you already believe. So and, you know, we don't have that shared reality. So I think um, in that way, I think we need to think a little bit more about how we consume information. Yeah, it's complicated. We're, we're not. It's complicated. Designed, yeah, we're not. We're not designed to be flooded with so much information and so many people's opinions and all that. I mean, all of this is just in the past, what, 16 or 16, 17 years, maybe, where you've just had this, you know, the rise of social media and smartphones and people just we, we are we're all being bombarded by far too many people's opinions and far too much information. And our brains are genuinely not designed, like we're biologically not designed. I think that's true. And it has, I mean, there is actually research that shows that our minds are not handling it that very well because um, you get dopamine rush every time you get a little ding on your phone or you check your Twitter or X or whatever. And the problem with that is, um, so, so one, yes, I think it's an information overload or data overload rather. And on top of it, I think it does rewire your brain. And then you need that like to be constantly stimulated. And also it means that you're not spending time like being bored, which actually is very important for your brain. Your brain does need to sort of rest and be bored and wonder. But if you're not giving it that opportunity, which a lot of people aren't, including myself, I've, I think I've become radically dumber, <laughs> like through time, I think. <laughs> No, because I have a harder time focusing long term. I used to be like, you know, getting in the zone for me to write something. I mean, I would be like in the zone for eight hours at a time. And I create all sorts of things I created little companies when I was a teenager, wrote a book when un, un, unshown to anybody when I was a teenager. So, I mean, like I didn't have an issue focusing. I didn't have I was like and I used to say I'm never bored. And now, you know, I, I, I can tell my brain is not great and it's not retaining information. And I, and it, I think there's even a book about this, about how like it's making us dumber. And I, and mm. I think it's true. I think it's true. And you're right. I think the overload, there's just so much and you're right. We're probably not meant to handle it. And maybe we evolve and we become different machines, human machines, but right now I think it's causing <laughs> a lot of, I mean, look at the mental health issues that people are having oh i don't think it's unconnected <laughs> everything's connected this is another problem yeah. we have with modern society trying to silo off everything and forget about the connections between um the mind the body the spirit the family communities identity all these things they're all treated as if they're separate whereas you know they're all inextricably linked that's the 100 percent. and community is a big part I, I i do cover that a little bit in the book not as much as <laughs> i wanted to but it's um i think community the loss of community has caused so much damage like i think part of why we have trouble talking to each other is because of the lack of of community part of why people are lonely like so many people are lonely I even ran a poll on on um, X. See, I used X now. I've updated my lingo. Um, it was just about you know dating, and I and I said you know you know how many people have are in a relationship currently or have dated someone, gone on a date, a single date in the last yep. year. Then I did last you know two years, three years, and I think it was something like forty three percent of people haven't gone on a single date in over two or three years. Wow. That was, I knew, I had a feeling that that number would be high, which is why I read the poll, but I didn't think it was that. 
How were how were married people accounted for in this poll? I put it in the category of gone on a date or married. <laughs> that was the oh, first okay, category. Okay. Fortunately, it doesn't okay. give you a lot of options to put in there, so I would have separated them out. But um, I put what, them. Do on. you remember? Do you remember what the percentage was in that category? Gone on a date. Yeah, or I think gone on a date or married was it about fifty percent, something on, like on, that, maybe forty-eight, and then very few people in the middle which was, I think, mm. like, uh, have gone on a date in the last year. So a lot of people were either dating or married or the other extreme, which is like two or three mm. years, no dates. Wow. And a lot of them have really given, like, you know, in the comments I was reading, like a lot of them have really given up. They're either not meeting people or been hurt. Like it mm. was just such a staggering number to me. And of course, you know, this is, this is, not a scientific poll, no. <laughs> not all the right options, not all the data, but it was quite visible. So it was a pretty large data set and it wasn't just reaching people follow me. So my, it's yeah. not like all, only my followers are lonely. <laughs> it was, <laughs> Elon did, uh, I think Elon commented on it. So that caused that to even get more people uh, participating, but it was, it was, yeah. it was staggering. Part of that, I think, um, I suspect, um, Dating websites uh, probably do play a role. Um, mm. They're not so effective. I think the pandemic played a role. And I think just people are not meeting each other in real life spaces anymore. So I think, um, and that's because there is that lack of community. And I get so many messages, by the way, from people who are just lonely, who just follow me. And they're just mm. so lonely and just need someone to talk to. I used to respond to everyone too, because I felt bad. And then I'm like, yeah. okay, I can't, I can't do that all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's sad. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. It, it was making me laugh. The concept of a poll where like, gone gone on a date and married, or even like in the same yes. like, category. <laughs> there's quite a yeah. there's, there's quite a chasm between have those a choice. things. But, yeah, I know, I know. I, I understand why it was done that way. Um, I don't want I don't want this con. I, you're, I could talk to you for a, a very long time, Catherine, but I want to be uh, I want to be conscious of the time. But one question I do have for you, and this is um. It's a personal question, but it's not super personal, you know, in a, any kind of weird way. But what what are you going to do based on all the things that you've learned over the last couple of years or that you've learned specifically in 2023? What are you going to be doing differently in mm. 2024 in terms of how you approach life personally, professionally, online, offline, whatever it may be? That's a great question. Um, a few tiers. So I think for me, what I've learned... I've learned that I'm more capable of taking risks than I ever thought I was. I'm more capable of of all sorts of risks and just and just like winging things sometimes. So and and kind of seeing what life offers. So that's something that I'm more um, I've discovered about myself that I didn't know. I, and I didn't know honestly. I didn't know I had a backbone. And I was like, oh, I guess I have one. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think for me, you know, just um, being able to be the bridge between different people, you know, I think that is probably something that I have as a strength because uh, I am able to kind of talk to anybody, whether it's somebody who uses pronouns or it's somebody who would never use a pronoun and mock them. Like I am able to find common ground. Um, I'm also, I really moved away. Like I, I really didn't want to become somebody who's just like radicalized and um, I didn't want to change like my fundamental values. And I think I stuck to them pretty well. 
Um, in fact, I reinforce them in some ways. You know, I um, I don't even use words like I don't want to use words like woke. You know, and and you're right, like avoiding like right wing. And sometimes I get it. We use it as a shorthand. So I don't, so I understand why people do, but what I really want to do is bring people together and you can't do it by like mo mocking someone or, um, you can mock ideas. I just don't like mocking people. <laughs> um, so I want to bring people together and that's kind of my path and other people have other paths, but I think that's what I want to do. And, you know, I've realized that I have a different voice than I thought I did. You know, I, I, I was I was an interviewer and I still love doing that. I was that was my primary sort of role as a writer. I love doing interviews with people because I learn so much and get to have interesting conversations. Um, I'm a lot less interested in the subjects that I was writing about um, mm. in the past. So I'm I am much more interested in sort of the cultural side of things, philosophy, psychology, also AI. So I've gotten into that. Um, and so that's where I want to go. And I'm trying to figure out how, because I had a really good kind of career path. I was doing really well. I was kind of at the top of all the things I was doing. And then things sort of, it's not that even that they like completely came tumbling down. I don't know how successful they were in the cancellation efforts, but I think I made a choice myself, which was, you know, to speak about different topics that, you know, people like me weren't speaking about. And, um, and I also realized that like, I want to be really an independent voice. Um, because I, I really st stopped wanting to pitch to any publications. And it's a little bit frustrating, because I don't know how to make that work in, a, in an economic sense. Um, but I want to find ways to be a truly independent voice. And, and continue sort of investigating things and and you know continue growing a backbone and taking risks and no talking doubt. to well, people that, <laughs> <laughs> well that all sounds that all sounds positive um if i can share any piece of unsolicited advice based Please. on what you've said um one thing i would say is that i found that as as you grow in popularity or fame or followers or whatever it is one of the things that is that people underestimate that I think is the hardest and most challenging thing is to do what you said, is to not fall, be careful of not falling into tribes, be very careful of audience capture. Yes. Audience capture is so tempting. For people who are listening who don't know what that means, it means becoming sort of trapped by your own audience, getting captured by your own audience where you're just giving them exactly what they want and there's and you you become so afraid to speak you're so afraid of alienating people or rocking the boat within your own audience or tribe or whatever that you just end up becoming a sort of parody of yourself or your ideological belief system i've and seen that happen so much it happens all like. it yeah. happens all the time it happens more often than not um, my audience oh, disagrees with me a lot so it's yes hard. it's good it's just keep keep upsetting your audience that's that's the thing right once in a while i i genuinely post i i one of this is one of my secrets but i can give this to my my podcast audience i intentionally occasionally post things that i know a significant chunk of my core audience is going to disagree with or get somewhat upset about 
And I do this very, very intentionally for multiple reasons. Number one, because I always want to maintain my intellectual and personal liberty and freedom of thought. Um, and also, I want the people who cannot handle minor to moderate disagreement or even strong disagreement sometimes, I want them to unfollow. I don't want an audience of a million, two million people who like, do you, do you know something people say to me, which um, I think is supposed to find flattering, but I find it slightly concerning is when someone says, I agree with everything you say. Yes. I'm like, all right, I need to annoy this person. I'm like, I need to find, <laughs> I need to I find know exactly what I, you mean. I'll, I'm like, I need to find the thing that I genuinely believe, but which I think you're going to disagree with. And I need to say it because I was on a I don't, podcast. <laughs> I was on this podcast um, that was like, well, the person would say he's a centrist and we had a disagreement yeah. about this, but I think he's right wing. But anyways, that aside, his audience was definitely more right wing and I was sort of representing more the left. And I got so many messages after from, from people who like followed me after the uh, podcast or yeah, it was a podcast. And he and the messages said, I disagree with pretty much everything you said, <laughs> but I kind of like you. <laughs> so yes, yes, I decided exactly. to follow you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a lot of those. It can be really tough, too, because sometimes you're like, oh, I, it's so much disagreement. Right. And I'm like, I want people to agree. I want I don't want a lot of confrontation, but um, but you're a hundred percent right. And I think what you're doing, you do this and um, Constantine, um, I don't know if you know him, he trigonometry. Yeah, we went to school, we went to school together. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. Wow. I've, that's I've, known, I've known, I've known Constantine since I was 11. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. So you both have the same philosophy on this. Cause I know he said something too, like he, he'll also intentionally, and he, He's not afraid of being disagreeable. He actually was very surprised that my score on agreeableness was actually higher than he thought it would be. <laughs> so, but he's yeah, and I and neither of you. I mean, really interesting people tend to be fairly disagreeable because you're I'm, not. I'm pretty disagreeable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I know that, and I think. I'm fighting all the time with my like, because I, I was always opinionated, and I and I was somebody who would say something that wasn't like within the sphere of agreement or, or or would be so acceptable. So I had that tendency in me. However, at the same time, like I said, growing up like brutally shy, wanting people to like me, caring about what people think. And so it was such a at odds with like aspects of my personality. But you know, I think I'm kind of growing into it more and maybe I am more disagreeable now than I used to be, but I'm, I still want people to be happy and I want, you know, I don't want to cause pain or anything. Look, I, no, I, no, I, you, but like, yeah. No, I was going to just say, look, I think if, I think if you always maintain humanity, kindness and honesty, then whether people agree, disagree, whatever, any decent person will always, will always respect that. Right. As long as you as long as you do that, if you're honest and you're kind to people and you attack ideas or criticize ideas more than uh, going after individuals, then, um, yeah, I, I get that all the time. I've even had it in the real world. I've met people who have like come up to me in public and been like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't agree with you on everything or whatever. But like, <laughs> I like the way I like the way you think and I like yeah. the way that you word things. And even if it's a subject where we disagree on, I totally get where you're coming from because you actually explain your 
you actually explain your position and you're not afraid of other people questioning it or challenging it or digging exactly. into it or whatever. Like I, and I won't say something. Faith, right. Like being exactly in good faith. A long way. Exactly. And, and then, it, and it, like you said, explaining, uh, taking people on the journey with you, right? Like, this is why I believe what I believe. This is how I arrived at it. Cause I realized that that's how I write. And, um, I'm almost like figuring out the thing I'm going to say as I write it. Um, and I'm bringing people along on the journey. So at least people understand then, okay, this is why she thinks what she thinks. And it's not coming even with like, sometimes people will send me messages because they really strongly disagree with me on something and they'll sort of attack me. And this happened recently. And after I explained to the person how I arrived, where, where, where I arrived, he's like, okay, you know what? It's not what I thought. I actually apologize. Um, Cause he went off at me like pretty seriously. And, and it's because he didn't understand. So he viewed whatever I said as being super racist, I think. And mm. once I explained to him where I was coming from and my background, and um, he completely changed his mind. But I think often people just kind of write a story in their heads as to what they believe that you believe. And it's often very wrong. So explaining how you arrive there at the destination, I think, makes a big difference. It absolutely does. Um, and then you reach a point where it's impossible to do that, at least at scale, which is, um, another massive challenge that I've had over the last couple yeah. of years. I've had to accept, I've had to accept that there are thousands of people in the world, possibly hundreds of thousands who think that I believe things that I don't believe and have done things that I've never done. I wish I could correct them all, but I've just <laughs> now mentally and in my heart accepted, okay, you know, the more people who know you the more people are going to have wrong impressions of you. And I've seen this happen for other people who are far more famous than I am, right? I don't know, a Joe Rogan or whatever. And you see yeah. some of the opinions people have about him or the things people think or Elon. And you're just like, you hear the things people are saying, you're just like, what are you even, what are you even talking about? Where did you get that from? But, you know, I guess that's just, I guess that's just how it goes. Catherine, where can people find and follow you online? Sure. Um, so I am on what is now called as X, uh, um, Mysterious Cat with a K, K-A-T. I'm a dog person despite the name, just want people to know that. Um, I have a Substack, uh, which you can find at katherinebrotsky.substack.com or Catherine Writes, uh, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. Wow, I can spell my own name. Um, so that that takes you there as well. And if you're interested in this book I wrote that I took way too long to write called No Apologies, it's like at a, Amazon and, and all these different booksellers. So you can find it there. It comes out on January 30. Awesome. I think that's Get all. <laughs> no doubt. Really good to talk to you. And uh, I wish you all the best for 2024. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you as well. Stick with the slang, sticking up distant from